When word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then, the fifth time, Sambalat sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter, in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building a wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They are all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they're coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realised that God had not sent him but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so I could commit, would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the pro- prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies had heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realised that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Ara, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshullam, the son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I had said, and Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. Thank you, Anna. Always happy to hear someone reading the scriptures for me and struggling with Hebrew names as I do when I read them well done. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Jonathan, for your welcome. Um, looking at our numbers this afternoon, and uh, congratulations to those of you who have come. But looking at our numbers, I'm struggling not to be paranoid. I'm struggling to blame it on the imminent bank holiday and, uh, and not take it personally. Well, you will be aware then that we are continuing today in a series looking through the book of Nehemiah. And I was with you on the 2nd of May 
and we looked at Nehemiah chapter 2 and we thought about Nehemiah's example of leadership and how the work of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem started because of the vision of one man. Uh, You will, in my absence, you've continued going through the book and in chapter 4 you will see that the work progressed not merely because of the vision of one man, not merely because of his leadership, but because of partnership, because of the contribution of many people. And the work progressed, despite the opposition, despite the enemies of Jerusalem fighting what essentially was a war of attrition, picking away at what was being done, finding fault with the work, and threatening the workers. And I think it's worth just noting that the opposition came from without, that is, it was external. Chapter 4, it takes the shape of mockery and scheming and threats, and it also came from within. There was internal opposition. Self-serving Hebrew nobles saw God's people as sheep and immediately set out to fleece them and Nehemiah had to take a very firm line. And I think there is a clear lesson for us there, as we build for God, as you seek to build something for God in this place and in this community, you must expect what you are doing on occasions to be challenged by unbelievers who do not share your agenda. And sad to say, you must anticipate that there will be times when it will also be put at threat, put at risk by Believers, or those who claim to be believers, external opposition and sometimes internal opposition. There are quite a few warnings in the New Testament uh, against uh, allowing uh, those who, who profess to be believers to hijack the church and to set it going in a wrong direction. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 30, the Apostle Paul told the leaders of the Christians at Ephesus that he knew that after his departure, from your own number, men will arise, drawing away disciples after them. So we can expect opposition from without, and we can expect attempted sabotage from within. And frankly, to not expect problems from both of those sources would be incredibly naive. And so we come today to chapter 6, which we'll have on screen, thank you. And uh, we see here in chapter 6 that Nehemiah's enemies, who are in fact, of course, God's enemies, uh, they try a different ploy. Mockery and threats have failed to slow the work down or to hinder its completion, and so they try a different ploy. Let's call it, verse 2, let's call it distraction. Uh, Samballot comes or sends a message to Nehemiah which sounds eminently reasonable. And by virtue of that, it, 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 it makes anything like a negative reply from Nehemiah sound very unreasonable. It sounds so perfectly reasonable. Let's meet up and talk about it. And I think it's significant that he suggests they meet in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. The villages of the plains of Ono were halfway between Samaria and Jerusalem. So essentially, Sam Ballot's saying, let's meet halfway. Come on, let's meet halfway. I mean, what's wrong in talking? You, you're not against dialogue, are you, Nehemiah? Let's meet, let's talk. And Nehemiah's reply, in essence, I would sum it up in this way. We have nothing to talk about. It's as simple as that. 
He'd already made his position regarding any cooperation with Sanballat perfectly clear in chapter 2 and in verse 20. As for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. We have nothing to talk about. My agenda, says Nehemiah, is to do what God wants and yours is to stop me. There's no middle ground. There's no basis for negotiation or even discussion. This is one of those situations about which James wrote in James chapter 4. This is a situation where friendship with the world would have been enmity with God. And there are three reasons that I've identified and you will identify easily in the text which explain why Nehemiah would not meet Sambalat. Reasonable, though Sambalat's request sounded on the face of it. Here's the first one, three reasons. It's in the second part of verse 2. He knew they were scheming to harm him. Now, leaders of God's work, whether in Kenilworth or Jerusalem, need to be brave. But they don't need to be foolhardy. They need to be courageous, but they don't need to be naive. Nehemiah knew that Sam Ballot's agenda was not really dialogue. It, it was to harm him, not to help him. And the devil's agenda, and therefore the agenda of his servants, does not change. In John chapter 8 and verse 44, Jesus, speaking about the devil, said, There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of liars. And in John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus gives Satan a character reference. He says, The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. He has no other agenda. However he cloaks it, however he disguises it, whatever fine words he wraps it in, however reasonable his suggestions, the devil's agenda then and now is to steal and to kill and to destroy. And so Nehemiah says, well, I, I, I know you're scheming to harm me, so I'm not going to come and meet you. Secondly, the work was too important for him to waste time. I am carrying on a great project, verse 3. I think King James Authorised Version says, I am doing a great work. Now he wasn't saying he was a great man. He wasn't saying he was doing great things for God. He was saying God is doing great things and I am involved in that and it takes all my time and all my effort and all my energies. Now listen friends, you in that sense here in Kenilworth are doing a great work. Really, believe it. You are involved in a great project. You are seeking to bring the light to this community, to reach people for Christ. You must expect Satan to muster his forces against you. And it needs all your attention, and it needs all your effort. And it may be that cooperation with secular groups and organisations in the community may sometimes be right and helpful, you are, after all, seeking not so much to invade Kenilworth from outside with the gospel as pervade Kenilworth from inside with the gospel, I suspect. So it may be necessary that you, you do have meetings with secular groups and you do have alliances with community organisations. But never forget this. Unbelievers, even most sympathetically inclined of them, they do not share your vision. They do not share your agenda. Your agenda is to see God's kingdom established and Christ in the hearts of men and women and the devil does not have that agenda. The third reason Nehemiah wouldn't meet Sam Ballot is also in the passage. Well, it's in the passage implicitly. I believe he understood that neither of this project failed. 
leaderless projects fail. Nehemiah knew that at this point in the game, if he left the site, the work would slow down and possibly even grind to a halt. He wasn't being big-headed about it. He knew who he was. He knew what he could do, and he knew his leadership was critical at this stage. You know, in Romans chapter 12, talking about spiritual gifts, the Apostle Paul says we should have a sober estimate of our own God-given abilities. A sober estimate of our own God-given abilities. Not an inflated one. We should neither exaggerate our God-given abilities, nor should we deny that we have God-given abilities. I've found so often in the churches as I've ministered and just been, been part of a church, I've found that so often believers seem to fall into one of those, they go to one of those two poles. Some people almost unhelpfully think of themselves as God's gift to the church. They have an exaggerated view of their own importance in the scheme of things. And other believers go into a denial camp. They're the ones who say, oh, well, I can't really do very much, you know, I can only do this or, or, or that. Paul says, have a sober estimate of your own God-given abilities. That's what Nehemiah had. He knew that at this stage, his presence was critical. So he refused to be distracted from doing what God had given him to do. Well, distraction having failed, Samballat now employs deception, and that's in verses 5 to 9. And his deception comes in two ways. First of all, he writes an open letter, which is an attack on Nehemiah's integrity and his reputation. An open letter, which is an attack on Nehemiah's integrity. He says, your agenda, Nehemiah, is really personal glory and power. You're seeking nothing less than personal glory and kingship. He's really going for the jugular here, because if he can sow amongst God's people a seed of suspicion as to what Nehemiah's ultimate ambition really was, if he can cast a shadow on Nehemiah's integrity in the minds of the Jews, then the work will falter. And... uh, Well, it's very important, you know, that that leaders in God's work have the confidence of the people whom they lead. Therefore, there must not be any shadow on their reputation for integrity. And God's people must be clear in their understanding of what that person's personal ambition is. And Christian people should not be too quick to believe accusations. This is a little tangential, but it's on my heart to say it. When someone is leading, whether it's Nehemiah or Jonathan Wright or Adrian or whoever it is, when someone's in leadership, they've put themselves out there, you know. They've got their head above the parapet. They're inviting a bit of enemy fire. And sometimes people are quick to believe accusations or to believe slanders or to pick up and, uh, and believe rumours. And the New Testament speaks about that in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. Paul writes, Do not entertain an accusation against a leader unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Of course, investigate, but privately. Do not prosecute or punish a Christian leader unless there is compelling reason and evidence to do so. So, first he writes an open letter, which is an attack on Nehemiah's integrity and reputation. And secondly, the deception comes through a lying prophet. It seems that this man, uh, Shemaiah, was a prophet, one of several, in fact. A lying prophet. The letter had been a political thing, accusing Nehemiah of having political, uh, regal ambitions. Shemaiah's deception was a spiritual thing. 
And Nehemiah firstly refuses to run away and hide from danger. Good lesson for those of us in leadership there. Jesus said it's the hireling who runs when danger threatens. The real shepherd, the true shepherd, stays by the flock. So Nehemiah wasn't going to run and hide from danger. That would have been unbefitting his position as a leader of God's people. And secondly, he had discernment. Nehemiah knew when God was speaking, and just as importantly, he knew when God wasn't speaking. And he discerned that God was not speaking through this prophet Shemaiah. A.W. Tozer, the American pastor and writer and teacher, in the 1950s, speaking about the United States and the evangelical church scene, made the telling comment that the greatest need of the church in his day was a need for discernment, a need for discernment, to know when God was speaking and when God was not speaking. So we need to establish this in our minds. You've no idea who will join you over the coming years, um, what they will bring to to your fellowship, for good or for bad. So let's have this in our minds. Just because somebody says, claims to have a message from God, it does not mean they have a message from God. We need discernment to know when God is speaking and when God is not speaking. And of course, Nehemiah could quickly uh, see that this message from the prophet was not from God because it flew in the face of what God had already said. God had told him to get on and build the wall not to run and hide. Anything that people say comes from God which denies or contradicts what God has already said to us is not a message from God because the Holy Spirit will not initiate and inspire a message which contradicts something he has already said. And so Nehemiah's response to Sambalat's slanders was to refute them and pray. His response to the lying prophet was to reject his words and again pray, and God blessed his stance. He refused to be distracted, intimidated or deceived, and in verse 15, the wall was completed and his enemies were discomfited. And this was all done, verse 16, second part of the verse, this was all done with the help of God. When I read that earlier this week, it reminded me of when Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch in Syria, having been on their first missionary journey taking in Cyprus and large swathes of what we would now think of as Turkey, establishing at least four, if not five, congregations. They eventually retraced their steps visiting the believers and come back to Antioch in Syria from where they'd gone. And we read in Acts chapter 14, on arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them. And that's what Nehemiah is doing. This was done with the help of God. There's a lovely and a very important balance in these words. Those of us who are sometimes called on to report on our work and to talk about what we have been doing, we need to have this balance very clear. Paul and Barnabas reported on all that God had done through them. God had been at work, God had done great things, and God had done great things through Paul and Barnabas. And we have to be very careful. Not to pretend that our work is not important, but to stress that it is God who is at work in us and through us. That is what is really important. Well, I finish by referring you to verses 17 to 19, where it becomes apparent that Nehemiah has won a battle, but that the war was a long way from being over. Nehemiah had won the battle, but the war was a long way from being over. 
because opposition to God's work and opposition to God's workmen continued. God's enemies were implacable and some of God's people continued to disappoint. Even in the very final chapter of Nehemiah, you'll see when you get there, Nehemiah in the final chapter is still having to make reforms and discipline the unfaithful members of his community. And if you're thinking, well, that's a bit of a low note to end on, Bob, well, it's only the end of my sermon, it's not the end of the book. Uh, So I'm not in the business of inventing happy endings. The fact is that uh, chapter 6 ends with Nehemiah still suffering from the attacks of Sambalat and Tobiah, attempts to intimidate him and, and, and a fifth column working against him in his own city. There is some great uplifting stuff to come in the book of Nehemiah, but I'm just being realistic. And to that end, I will close with this little saying, which some of you may have heard of. A pessimist sees the tunnel. An optimist sees the light at the end of the tunnel. The realist sees the tunnel, the light, and the next tunnel. And that's the situation that Nehemiah was in. That is the situation in which we are in. Father, we do thank you for preserving the record of your servant Nehemiah. We thank you for all that we can see in him and in his service for you and for the example of his resolve, his vision, his single-mindedness, his courage and his discernment. We, we covet these things for ourselves as we seek to be builders for you in our time and in this place. We pray, Lord, for Adrian and for Pippa as they come to uh, perhaps be part of the fellowship here and to bring their gifting to the, to the leadership and to the fellowship. And we pray you'll watch over them and anoint them, Lord, for this task and ministry that you are calling them to. We pray for each of the elders, Lord, and their families. Indeed, we pray for each one of us that uh, we will find and play our part and give it our best and not be distracted and not be deceived. And now we pray that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship and the help of the Holy Spirit himself will be our experience this day. In Jesus' name, Amen.